All right, so in our last book study, we went verse by verse through the Gospel of John. And I, I think it was really, really a rich study. So, um, real quick, if you're new to Calvary and you missed that, you need to know that all 52 of those messages are available on our website or on our podcast. Regarding our website, you just go to calvarypsl.com, you click on past messages, and that page, books of the Bible, will come up. These are books that I have taught in past years, um, but John is there um, in that list, and so if you miss John, you can access it that way. Another way you can access any of the teachings is through our podcast. So uh, go to the app, wherever you get your podcast, type in Calvary PSL, one word, and all the messages will come up there as well. And we also have a YouTube channel. Now, uh, because we spent so much time in the Gospel of John, over a year, I thought it was natural for us just to continue on with the author of John. And so, a few weeks ago, we kicked off uh, a new book study in 1 John. And so, by way of quick review, um, the one of the basic differences between the Gospel of John and 1 John has to do with two words, believe and abide, believe and abide, okay? And so John in his Gospel emphasized believing in Jesus Christ. And then the same John in his letter emphasizes abiding in Christ. If you're brand new to everything, believing in Christ if you do that, you will have eternal life. And then if you abide in Christ, you will have, good news, abundant life. And that leads us to our theme for 1 John. The theme of 1 John is there is more. You can expect more. Why? What do you base that on, pastor? The words of Jesus. Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, the thief, the devil, Satan, he comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it, what's the last two words, you know? More abundantly. And so Christ wants to make it crystal clear that he not only wants us to experience life, he wants us to experience life more abundantly. And so as we go verse by verse through the letter of John, we're gonna see that there is more there's more joy, there's more light, there's more victory and discernment and hope. Practical right, there's more practical righteousness for you in your life. And truth, love, faith, and confidence. All those are topics that John wrote about uh, in this Holy Spirit-inspired letter to the Christian community. So last time we were together, as I said, we talked about joy. Today, we're gonna talk about light. And so right now, if you um, are looking at 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, can you just say amen so I know you're with me? And so if to our visitors, I'm a broken record, I say this every week, but I want to really make sure you understand that at Calvary, and you saw it the last two weeks with Pastor Tiago and with Pastor Will, at Calvary, we are not here, nor are we called to do motivational speeches. We are here to teach the Word of God. It does not matter what we say, it matters what God says. What we do is we exegete the text and we apply it and illustrate it so that the Word of God, the Spirit of God can take the Word of God and do a work in the hearts of the people of God and draw sinners to salvation. 
That's what we do here. And so I wanna encourage you to bring your Bibles, please, to church, or at least pull it up on your smartphone or mobile device. So 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. John says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. John starts off, right? He's an elderly man, probably in his 80s or 90s. It's somewhere between AD 90 and AD 95. And he's there, he's in Ephesus, we believe. He's pastoring not just one church, but probably a group of churches. He's been walking with the Lord for a long, long time time and the spirit comes and the spirit begins to inspire John so he sits down with parchment and ink and he says this is the message we all right who's the we the we is John and the apostles eyewitnesses of the 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 uh, ministry of Jesus Christ eyewitnesses of his resurrection Ladies and gentlemen, if you're new to all this, you gotta understand that what I'm teaching today isn't a bunch of nonsense or fairy tales that was written hundreds of years after a man named Jesus of Nazareth lived. No, this is the eyewitness testimony of the life of Jesus Christ. This is the message we heard from him. Who's him? Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And proclaim to you, who's you? the Christian community 2,000 years ago and the Christian community uh, for the last 2,000 years, including everybody, Christians, in this room this morning. And what was the message? Look again at verse five. The message is this. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God is light. Now, obviously, in the context, the word light is a metaphor. And it's a metaphor for holiness. God is light means God is holy. He always has been, is now, and always will be perfectly pure. And to make sure that we really get it, to make sure we understand how important this is, John emphasized the truth of God's holiness twice in one verse. In fact, he emphasized the truth of God's holiness twice in a half a verse, right? He said, God, verse 5b, he said, God is light, God is holy. And in case we didn't get it, he ends the verse by saying this, and in him there is no darkness at all. No darkness at all. And so when we think about the word darkness, you gotta understand that that is also a metaphor And in the context of 1 John chapter 1, darkness is a metaphor for sin. So see what John is doing, the Holy Spirit through John, is he's um, showing the contrast between God's holiness and our sin. And so in him, there is no darkness at all. What does that mean? That means that he's not like us. In him, there is no hint of sin at all. All God, our God, the true God, the God of the Bible, the, the, the God of theism. God is pure holiness and he is pure light. And we see an example of that in Isaiah chapter six. 
in Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet had a stunning vision of God. He said, in the year King Uzziah died. If you haven't been reading the Old Testament, you gotta get in the Old Testament because you'll help, it'll help you understand the New Testament, right? So Uzziah was one of the good kings. There wasn't many. All the kings of Israel were bad. Some of the kings of Judah were good. Uzziah was one of them. And so Isaiah said this, in the, king, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne high and lifted up. And the seraphim were above him. The seraphim were a special, or an are, a special order of angels in heaven. And each of the seraphs had six wings. With two, they covered their face. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And what are they doing in heaven? Well, Isaiah said, I saw it. And here's what I heard one angel say to the other. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Wow. God is not like us. God is not a contingent being. God is a necessary being. God is not dependent on anything or anyone. God is self-existent. And God is absolutely one. And God is completely holy. And Isaiah saw this. Now, when Isaiah saw this, did he kind of just strut up to the throne of God and say, hey, what's up, bro? Is that what Isaiah did? No, not even close. No way. This is what he, did, what he said. Woe is me. Can you guys just say woe? Whoa, that was his response. Woe is me, for I am lost. I like the New King James um, rendering of that Hebrew word. I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, what's going on is that when Isaiah got into the presence of our holy God, when he got in the presence of God's holy light, his sin was exposed, he became convicted. That leads you to your next point. Speaking of God's light, it is pure. Speaking of God's light, it is undefiled. Speaking of God's light, it also exposes our sin. And by the way, you're gonna see as we continue on, that's a good thing, that's not a bad thing. It exposes our sin. If I were to go home today and it remains, I don't even know what the weather is like, but let's say it's a perfectly clear, sunny day. Probably not, right? Uh, but let's say it is. And I were to go outside of my house and I were to lift up a transparent glass of cloudy water and hold it up to the sunlight. Here's what I know. What I know is that as the sun rays pass through that glass, the cloudy water will not contaminate the light. As the sun rays pass through the glass, the sun rays, the light, will remain pure and undefiled. But what will the light do to the glass? The light will, will expose that that water is dirty. And see, it's the same thing with Isaiah. When he suddenly found himself in the presence of 
the holy God? What happened? Did Isaiah's sin somehow affect God? Ladies and gentlemen, please understand the God of the Bible, the God of theism, the God of the Bible, he is immutable. That means he does not change. I, the Lord, change not. So our sin doesn't affect God, okay? And so when, when Isaiah was in God's presence, he was obviously a sinner, but you gotta understand that his sin didn't affect God. But God's light sure did affect Isaiah. What happened? God's light shone upon him and it exposed his sin and Isaiah came under conviction and he cried out, woe is me. How many of you guys believe God is light? How many of you guys believe that this word is light? Right, and one of the ways that God, because he loves us and wants to have fellowship with us, one of the ways that he brings us under conviction is one, by the presence of his Holy Spirit, and two, by the reading, the studying of the word of God. And so the Holy, Jesus said the Holy Spirit comes to convict, that's a good thing, convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. But I submit to you that the Holy Spirit is not just convicting the world of their sins, he's also convicting the church of our sin. And the primary way that he does that is through the light of his word. Now, this is why a lot of people don't go to Bible teaching churches. They'd rather go to those churches that give motivational speeches. Why? Because in those churches, you might get one, two, three verses thrown up on a screen, but there is no open Bible teaching through a biblical text. And they're more comfortable in those churches because the light of God's word is not exposing their sin. There's a big show, there's a performance, right? There's theatrics, but what's the problem? There's no word of God. And so this is why we are a Bible teaching church because the, whole, the primary way the Lord exposes our sin so that we can be convicted and confess it and have fellowship with him is through the Holy Spirit taking the word of God and shining it on the hearts of the people of God. So when that happens to you, you shouldn't run away. When that happens to me, I shouldn't run away like Adam and Eve. We should stand there like men and women and like Isaiah, receive that light, receive that conviction, and that should lead us, as we'll find out later in verse nine, to confess our sin. But before we get to verse nine, you gotta understand that there was a problem in the church 2,000 years ago. And the problem was this. The problem was there was Christians, and in their private lives, they were living in darkness. But then when they came publicly to church, they're acting all spiritual. In, the, in their private lives, they were doing things they ought not to do. But in their public lives, they were you know, playing the hypocrite, acting all pious around people. And so John is not one to pull punches. We saw this in the Gospel of John, we're seeing it in the letters of John. John is not one to pull punches, and so what does he do as a faithful pastor is that he calls that problem out. By the way, the problem persists till today. How many of you guys know there's hypocrites in the church, right? Now, I understand we're all hypocrites to, to a certain measure, but we, shouldn't, we should not you know, say that and act like that like it's an okay thing. It's not. And so look at how John 
deals with this now in verse six. He says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. All right, so what was John saying here? Your next point, if you're taking notes, and that is that we can't walk in darkness and walk with God at the same time. Now, what you gotta understand here at Calvary, we're just going verse by verse. It's not like I got up this, this, this week and said, I'm just gonna you know, go out and preach on sin to everybody. I'm just teaching through the Bible, and the Bible is dealing with what we're talking about today as we exegete the text. Does that, everybody make, does that make sense to everybody? Okay, and so one of my jobs as a pastor is to, with you, observe the text, and then my responsibility is to interpret the text, and then one of my responsibilities is to apply the text because the Bible wasn't given, us, given to us so we could have big theological heads. It was given to us to change our lives. And so here's the application. The application, look again at verse six. We're gonna talk about some things that are very prevalent in our society and sad to say very prevalent in our churches. He said if we, ha if we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in sexual immorality. Because darkness there is a metaphor for sin. And sexual morality is a sin that's prevalent in society and sadly in the church. So if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in sexual immorality, we lie and do not practice the truth. All right, so what is sexual immorality in the New Testament? The word is pornea in the Greek, which is where we get our English word, pornography. And so sexual immorality, as you look at the entirety of the New Testament, is simply this. It's any sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage. God, I've said it a thousand times, created sex, but he created it to be enjoyed between one man and one woman who are in the covenant of marriage. And the word of God is very clear in the Old and New Testament that sexual activity outside of that covenant is wrong. It is absolutely sin. And you might say this morning, I don't actually commit some sexual immorality, I just watch it on TV or on my device, on Netflix or Prime or whatever. But there's a problem with that too, ladies and gentlemen. The problem number one is you should not be allowing that to even come into your home, but the problem number two is that Jesus said in Matthew 5, 28, quote, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And it's the same thing with women looking at men. If any woman looks at a man with lust in her heart, she's already committed adultery with him in her heart. And so I'm just trying to be real this morning, and that is that if we're walking in lust, we're not walking with God, no matter how pious we act at church. Another example of that, look at verse six. He says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, another sin, drunkenness, we lie, and we do not practice the truth. All right, so what's drunkenness in the New Testament? The Greek word is methusko. Drunkenness is not having a glass of wine with your dinner. Drunkenness is becoming intoxicated. Now, by the way, if you have an addiction to alcohol, you need to skip 
the glass of wine at dinner because you more than anybody know that's going to end up in drunkenness. Okay? And so quick side note, this is for free. I just want to appeal to the young people that are here today. And I just want to ask you to consider something. Okay, I want to ask you to prayerfully consider as you're approaching your 21st birthday, just consider in your life avoiding alcohol completely. Consider that. Not because the Bible teaches total abstinence. It does not. But here's a good reason to consider it. Because according to the American Addiction Centers, nearly 14 million American adults are alcoholics. 14 million. That does not even include all the millions who are heavy drinkers, but not classified as alcoholics. 14 million. And here's what I would guarantee, because I've been doing this a long time and I've had a lot of counseling sessions. I guarantee you that if many of those 14 million could somehow, some way, go back to your age, young person, after all the grief and all the heartache and all the broken relationships and all the hurt feelings and all the broken hearts, if they could somehow, some way, go back to your age and do it all over again, I guarantee you, many of them, not all of them, but many of them would avoid alcohol like the plague. So consider it. But what's the sin? The sin is drunkenness, which is why Paul said in Ephesians 5.18, don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. One of the things the Lord spoke to my heart about was to, to make sure that you guys understand that when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, that when you're under the influence of the Holy Spirit, it just doesn't get better than that. In other words, I'd be, rather be under the influence of the Holy Spirit than under the influence of wine and spirits every day of the week. Nothing's better than Jesus. Another example, look at verse six, as we continue to apply the Bible to our lives, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in unforgiveness, bitterness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Okay, and so as you think through this whole thing, I know we live in a fallen world. I know we, we all have challenging family members. I know that people at work drive us crazy. And I understand that, that, that people get offended. In life, in this fallen world, there's lots of offenses every single day. But Jesus wants us to forgive. You say, you don't know what that person did to me. And I've heard the stories this weekend already. You don't know what that person did to me. You don't know how they hurt me. I will never forgive them. Forget it. And I would just say, are you sure? Because Jesus said in Matthew 6, 15, quote, if you don't forgive others their sins, neither will your father forgive your sins. And if still you're persisting and you're saying, they don't deserve it, can I just ask you, do you think you deserve the forgiveness of God in your life? Ladies and gentlemen, the truth is this, everything above hell is grace. None of us deserve forgiveness. 
And yet, if we've turned to Christ in repentance and faith, he has forgiven us fully and freely. So the same way God has forgiven you, you gotta forgive that person. I'm not saying you have to do life with the person. I am saying you got to forgive them from your heart. The key to unlock your prison cell of unforgiveness is right there on the inside of your cell. Turn it and walk out today. Be free. Now, it's not just the big so-called sins of immorality and drunkenness, unforgiveness. Paul said this to the Christian community. He said, put away anger, wrath, malice. That's ill will, right? You feel that ill will coming up in your heart? That is not from God. Slander. I hope nobody at Calvary is slandering one another. And look at this, obscene talk out of your mouth. What are we doing? Using foul language and telling dirty jokes. Ladies and gentlemen, it's not cool. Just not. I had a pastor tell me one time that the, the church that he came from, it was normal to hear curse words in the halls of the staff. And I'm like, what? What's going on? Are we God's people or not? Are we set apart or not? I understand that we're all works in progress, but ladies and gentlemen, the holy, note that word, holy spirit lives inside of us. And none of us are gonna be perfect, but he's doing a sanctifying work and he's changing us from the inside out, so we gotta put away anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk from our mouths. We don't lie to one another, seeing that we have put off the old self with its practices. And so when God's light exposes any of these sins and a whole lot more in our lives, my admonition to you and myself is let's not run away from the light like Adam and Eve, but let's stand there like Isaiah and allow the light to convict us because God is doing that for a good purpose in our lives. What is that good purpose? Now look at verse seven. Here's the good news. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship, koinonia, with one another. One of the reasons we have fellowship with one another is because we're actually forgiving each other. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and here it is, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, okay, in verse eight, no sin, that is the sin principle. That is the sin nature. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Verse nine, if we, he's speaking to the Christian community here. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you guys see the heart of God here? God, a heart, the, the heart of God here is awesome. He is for you, not against you. And so, man, look at verse 10. He says, if we say we have not sinned, this is not speaking of the sin nature here, this is talking about sins that we commit. If we say we have not sinned, you know, I'm perfect or whatever. I don't need to confess or whatever. Be careful, because if we do that, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. The logos is not in us. The idea there is 
the number one way the Holy Spirit exposes our sin and sanctifies us is the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and does a work in the hearts of the people of God. And so if we're saying, I don't need all this, then his Word, the sanctifying work of the Word of God, is not effective in us. Is this all making sense to you guys? Okay, and so God, I got really good news today. God, we thank God that he is perfectly holy, but God is not just perfectly holy. God is perfect love. And in his love, he's provided a remedy for our sin. What's the remedy? Here's the good news. The remedy for our sin is the blood of Jesus Christ. Man, God is so good. And you know why a lot of people don't get excited about this? You know why a lot of people don't rejoice in this? Because a lot of people don't believe in hell. And a lot of people not only don't believe in hell, they don't believe they deserve hell. Even though a holy God has said the wages of sin is, which means not annihilation, but separation from God forever. And so because they don't believe in hell, this whole thing about the blood of Jesus Christ doesn't really get them excited because, you know, um, I don't even believe that my sins could send me to hell. Ladies and gentlemen, everything above hell is grace, and I'm here to tell you that with all my heart, I believe in hell. The reason I believe in hell is because Jesus taught more on hell than he did on heaven. He knows a lot about these things. There is a hell, and there is a heaven, and the wages of sin really is death. Okay, all of that is true, but here's the good news. God is not just perfect holiness, God is perfect love, and God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him won't perish, but have everlasting life. Can someone please clap? Can someone please praise the Lord? Can somebody shout? Can somebody be thankful for their salvation today? It's okay, you can express it. Because here's what I know, when you take your last breath and you wake up in heaven, there's gonna be a party. There's gonna be a celebration because we're gonna have white robes. We've been cleansed in the blood of the lamb and we don't deserve any of it. It's all by God's grace. We're gonna learn next week when I'm with you that Jesus Christ is our advocate, our defense attorney. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not our sins only, but the sins of the whole world. The word propitiation is just a fancy theological word. What it means is to satisfy, to appease. What does that mean? That means that Christ's sacrifice on the cross appeased God's just nature. That means that the wages of sin is death. We do deserve death and hell, but Jesus Christ said, I love them. I don't want that to happen. I'm not willing that anybody should perish, so I am gonna become the propitiation for their sins. I am gonna appease the justice of God. I'm gonna die in their place. I'm gonna rise again to show everybody in the whole world that it is true. It is true. And so Paul put it this way in Ephesians 1.7. In Christ we have redemption. That means he set us free through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of our works. Aren't we all so great? Is that what it says? 
Nope, it's the riches of his what? Grace. So here's what I'm gonna do right now. Right now, I'm gonna use what's um, within hermeneutics or proper Bible interpretation. I'm gonna share a principle with you. And that is, first of all, you know this, you never read a verse alone, so to speak, right? You never, you don't take a verse out and teach whatever you want. You keep it in, you read the verses before and after in order to correctly interpret the verse. You not only do that within this context, you do that within the context of the chapter, and you not only do that within the context of the chapter, you do it within the context of the book, and you not only do that within the context of the book, you do it in the context of the entirety of the New Testament because it is the word of God, okay? And so here's what you gotta understand, that that verse right there in its context, that Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is teaching full and free redemption through the blood of Jesus. What does that mean? That means that the entirety of the New Testament teaches this, that when we were going our own way, doing our own thing, not caring about God, that he, because he loves us, began to draw us. And thank God for that. And as he was drawing us, we heard the gospel, the true gospel of Jesus Christ. When we turned to Christ, what are we turning away from? Our sin. And when we put our trust completely and wholly in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the price that he paid on Calvary to forgive our sins, here's what happened. If you're listening, say amen here. We received positional and judicial forgiveness for all our sins for all time, and we became children of God. Can you guys just smile about that, please? That's such good news. Such good news. But because we're not reading our Bibles, we don't get all this. Such good news. Positional, judicial forgiveness for all our sins for all time. You say it can't be true. It's too good to be true. Our God is a God of grace. He's absolutely amazing. Thank God for his love. Thank God for his mercy. Thank God for his grace. And that leads us to our next point. Now you gotta get this because there's lots of confusion in the church. Okay, so here's the truth. When God's children sin, they don't lose their relationship with him. They do lose their what with him? Fellowship. You see that? And so like jumping off the pages of the New Testament. Now, it's also seen in our own lives, right? Dad, your eight-year-old son, willfully rebels against you, disobeys directly what you said to, to them. Is that sin, yes or no? Three of you say yes. It's sin, okay? Even in our culture today, it is okay to say it is sin. Am I alone in this? It's sin. Your son directly disobeys you, that's called a sin. Okay, but here's what you don't do. You don't say, you did it again! How many times do I gotta tell you? You know what, just get out. Get out, you are no longer my son. Here's the door. And he's like, Dad, I'm only eight years old. <laughs> you don't do that, Dad, I hope you don't. Mom, you don't say, you're done, I'm done with you, I'm no longer your mother. No, you don't do that. No, they've sinned, and so what you gotta understand is that their legal relationship with you remains the same. But their fellowship with you, that's been strained, and there needs to be reconciliation in the house. 
oh man, gotta understand that God is our Abba Father. He is our daddy. And because we've received Christ as our Savior and Lord, we are his precious children. And he desires to have unhindered fellowship with his children. So what does he do when we sin? He sends the light of the Holy Spirit and the light of the word of God to expose our sin, to convict us of our sin. And then what should we do? We should confess it. Did you see that in verse nine? If we, he's writing to Christians, confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What does the word confess mean in the Greek? Okay, um, Andrew is our Greek scholar. I'm gonna try to pronounce this, homo legeo. And so homo legeo means, it's a conjunction, homo, same, legeo, word. And so it means to say the same thing as another to agree with. That is what the New Testament Greek word means. So what does that mean? That means that true confession is saying the same thing about our sin that God says. I just wanna let that sink in for a second because of the culture that we live in. When we truly confess, we're saying the same thing about our sin that God says, that it's wrong, and with his help, we need to forsake it. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13, whoever conceals his transgressions, in other words, whoever covers his sins, will not prosper, but he who confesses and, look at this, forsakes, you can't leave that one out, Whoever confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. And so we have to confess it and we have to forsake it. I like to say we need to admit it and we need to quit it. And that leads you to your next point. And that is that true confession is not just saying, sorry. Right? Your 10-year-old daughter, I'm sorry, your 10-year-old son goes and hits his big sister. And the big sister's like, mom, dad. And so you call the 10-year-old over and you say, hey, you need to go say sorry. And he walks up to his big sister and he's like, sorry. <laughs> okay, what's wrong with that? At least two things. Number one, he needs an attitude adjustment. Number two, the word sorry just means regret, to regret. You see that? So here's, here's, here's the, the point. Where is the admittance of any wrongdoing. Sorry. Yes, that's what we like to do in our culture. Why? Because we don't want to admit we're wrong. And so when we wrong somebody, we shouldn't just say, sorry. We should say, yeah, I do regret what I did, but I also want you to know I was wrong. Would you forgive me? Ladies and gentlemen, you want a revival in church? This is what it takes. It takes stop playing church, stop guarding our pride and ego, and really doing business with God and doing business with people. I was 
wrong. Now you gotta understand, because of that sin nature that Adam and Eve passed on to their whole progeny, and because of that principle of sin that we all have within us, those are gonna be the three hardest words maybe that you'll ever say in your life. It's really hard to say, I was wrong. And I was typing up the message this week, my mind went immediately back to happy days in the 1970s. How many of you guys grew up in the 70s? Oh my goodness, I'm really old now. There's like five of you. Some of you are like, what, happy days, what? So bear with me, okay? But in happy days, the Fonz wronged Ralph Mouth. Remember him, the red hair and the freckles? And he's like, Ralph, I just want you to know that I was, he couldn't actually say it. And Ralph was like, what are you trying to say? He's like, you know what I want to say, that you were wrong, and Fonz was like, right, he didn't want to admit it. So it's hard, right, because of our corrupt nature that we received from Adam. It's hard for us to say, I was wrong. But ladies and gentlemen, it's absolutely needed. Why? Because it shows our humility and not just our regret. So when we wrong somebody, we shouldn't just say sorry. When we wrong God, we shouldn't just say sorry. We should say, God, I agree with you that what I did, what I said was wrong, and I can't do this on my own. Would you please help me to forsake this sin? You want revival? I'm talking about it right now. Another thing to remember is don't blame shift. When God confronted Adam for eating the forbidden fruit, you guys remember this? What did Adam say to God? Yeah, the woman you gave me, the woman you gave to me, gave me the fruit, yeah, I ate it. Right, so what is he doing there? What he's doing, he's blame shifting. What he's doing is he's blaming everybody else but himself. He's blaming God, the woman you gave me. And he's blaming his wife, she gave me the fruit. So God turns to Eve, what have you done? What is, how does Eve respond? The serpent deceived me. In other words, the devil made me do it. You see what's going on? Blame shifting. And so before we beat up too much on Adam and Eve, we gotta admit we do the same thing in our own lives, right? A husband says to his wife, honey, I'm sorry, but you need to understand when you act that way, you make me angry. <laughs> what? When you act that way, you make me angry. Time out. Whose fault is it that you got angry? Nobody's fault except your own. So why don't we stop being kids and start acting like adults and taking responsibility for our actions? I'm telling you, if you want revival, I'm sharing it right now. We stop playing church, we start doing business with God and start doing business with one another. Right, or, or maybe it's like, it's like this. You're gonna have to excuse my language, but I'm from Jersey, and we just tell it like it is. You feel me? No, we don't feel you. We love you, but we don't feel you. God does not feel you. What's needed? What's needed is that we actually own up to what we say and what we do that is wrong. You guys, I think, are getting the picture, right? Okay, so let me move on. Another thing to remember, here's my last point. Never, when it comes to confession, redefine sin. Whew. 
this is exactly what our culture's been doing, like in fifth gear for the last 10 years. I am 56 years old, and I am shocked in the last 10 years of my life to see how exponentially the culture is redefining sin. And you know what my heart goes out to? My heart goes out to the kids. Because in our culture today, ladies and gentlemen, right is wrong and wrong is right. And it's all based on subjective morality. Moms and dads, I'm not too proud to plead with you to drill into the head of your young person the definition of subjective morality. What is it? Subjective morality is simply morality that is based on my own personal feelings. In other words, what do we do? Instead of looking to the objective standard of God's truth to determine what's right and wrong, people now more than ever are looking to the subjective standard of their own feelings to determine what is right and wrong. More than ever. And so I feel, a lot of times you hear people start their sentence with this, I feel like, right? I feel that transgenderism is okay. So it must be okay. I feel that abortion is fine. So it must be fine. I feel that gay marriage is great. So it must be great. I feel like we should celebrate Pride Month, show our support. I feel, I feel, I feel. But ladies and gentlemen, hear me. There's a problem with that. Our feelings can deceive us. And our feelings can lead us down a path where we don't wanna go. Scripture says it twice in the book of Proverbs. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. And here's what I know, that many in the culture will hear what I say, and they would say, there's another evangelical attacking us. No, 10,000 times no, I'm not attacking anybody. I'm warning people, and that's the most loving thing I can do, is warn people. It's the most loving thing. Why? Because ladies and gentlemen, this is the objective standard by which all of us will be judged by when we take our last breath. And that's why all of us, all of us are sinners and we all need the blood of Jesus Christ to wash away our sins so that we one day can stand before a holy God and not be consumed. And so God, the last thing on earth that God wants is to see people ruin their lives. And so what does he do? What God does is that he draws the lost to be saved so they can experience eternal life. But you need to know when he throws out that lifeline, it's your choice whether you're gonna grab on the lifeline of Jesus or not. He does not force anyone into his kingdom. And if you're already saved, what does he do? So we have unhindered fellowship with our Abba Father. He shines the light, expose our sin so we can admit it and with the help of his spirit, quit it. <laughs>